uh, welcome everybody to this AO Trauma North America Journal Club, where we're going to be discussing elderly femoral neck fractures. Now, I'm your host for the evening, uh, Roman Natoli. I'm joined by several um, moderators, Dr. Jane, uh, Dr. Harkin, and Dr. Goodnow. And we have our esteemed uh, faculty, Dr. Okike, Dr. Kerr, and Dr. Shemich. So here's our agenda for the evening. Um, currently, I'm welcoming you. Uh, when I'm done, we're going to watch video one where Dr. Harkin interviews Dr. Okike on not all garden one and two femoral neck fractures should be fixed. Uh, video two is Dr. Goodnow interviewing Dr. Shemich on total hip arthroplasty versus hemiarthroplasty for hip fracture, which is known as the health trial. And finally, we'll see Dr. Jane interview Dr. Carrier on the influence of door type of femoral fixation and outcomes following total hip arthroplasty for acute femoral neck fractures. And then we're gonna have um, an open discussion. And probably between 9.10 and 9.15, we'll end up wrapping up. I've chosen, uh, or collectively, we have chosen these articles uh, because as orthopedic surgeons, when we have a elderly femoral neck fracture, we're faced with surgical dilemmas. Uh, beginning with, should we fix it or replace it? Uh, once we've made that choice, how do we fix it and how do we replace it to get the best outcomes for our patients? Um, so we're gonna turn it over now to the video one. Well, thank you again so much for uh, joining us to kind of to talk about your influential paper. Um, you know, I was hoping to just kind of start things off by getting an idea from you what prompted this secondary analysis of the phase trial data to investigate this really important topic. Yeah, um, I was actually at OTA when I saw the um, study initially presented, and um, I thought a few things. Number one, um, you know, outstanding study, very hard to do randomized trials in orthopedics, um, but also um, you know, uh, there were many patients with displaced fractures um, in that trial, and I thought to myself, well, um, we kind of already know that those should probably be treated with arthroplasty, um, but they were treated with various forms of fixation uh, in the trial. And that got me thinking, okay, well, what about the um, non-displaced uh, fractures that were in that trial? Um, there was still a relatively high rate of reoperation um, in that study, uh, around 13%, and other studies as well. Um, and it got me thinking okay, so should we um, not be fixing any of these undisplaced fractures as well? Or uh, is there perhaps a subset um, that we shouldn't be fixing? Um, and if we could identify those, um, it would perhaps help us uh, lower that rate of reoperation to the level that we see in arthroplasty or displaced femoral neck fractures, only a couple percent versus the 10, 15 percent or more that we see in undisplaced or non-displaced fractures, which some would argue are a less severe injury. Yeah, certainly. I think those are some some great points, and it, it's great to see that insight and kind of how everything developed. Um, can you talk a little about some of your your primary outcome measures? I think you already mentioned a few. Yeah, so we set the study up as a secondary analysis of the FAITH trial. 
Um, and I should take this opportunity to thank not only my co-authors, um, but all of the surgeons who participated in the FAITH trial, uh, as was mentioned, really a Herculean effort um, to produce uh, data that's um, really been helpful to our field. Um, so what we did is we um, took the uh, non-displaced portion of the study sample, and our primary outcome measure was reoperation within the two years that these patients were followed uh, for the FAITH trial. And uh, the primary predictor uh, that we looked at was the degree of posterior tilt. So uh, displacement seen on the shoot-through lateral radiograph. The uh, garden classification is what we typically use to um, distinguish between femoral neck fractures uh, in the elderly. And uh, that's typically done uh, primarily on the AP view um, with ones and twos typically getting fixation, threes and fours typically getting arthroplasty. Um, and so uh, we thought that uh, the lateral view should be considered as well. Uh, some of the other predictors that we included um, of note uh, were age and gender. Yeah, and, and with what you found, I guess, with those kind of primary outcome measures, what do you think are two or three of the most important points that our readers and our audience here should kind of take away from the paper and how this might change their practice? So the most notable finding was that um, in patients who had uh, posterior tilt of 20 degrees or greater, uh, they had a much higher rate of uh, reoperation within that two-year window, uh, about twice as high, 22% uh, versus around 11% for patients who did not have um, posterior tilt to that degree. Um, and that's the most notable finding. Um, it's something that I have uh, carried over into my practice, whereas previously, I think like many people, I would fix nearly all garden ones and twos, um, whereas now uh, I uh, closely scrutinize that shoot-through lateral. If the patient doesn't have an adequate shoot-through lateral, I'll send them back to get one. I really do think um, it's important to essentially weed out fractures that are doomed to fail um, and allows me to do arthroplasty on them uh, primarily. Uh, two other factors that we found to be um, associated with reoperation. Um, the, the, fir the first one was um, age, so age over 80 um, was significantly associated with, with reoperation. And then female gender um, was close. It was, you know, the p value was 0 0.06, so it was a trend toward that. So in, in my practice now, um, I have a much higher um, threshold to do fixation and a much lower threshold to do arthroplasty. So uh, <clears throat> for any patient where, um, you know, their, their age is, is starting to get above 80, um, especially if they're female and definitely if there's any posterior tilt, um, I'll now do hemiarthroplasty as opposed to previously, uh, those are patients I may have been fixing. Yeah, I think, the, I mean, the paper definitely is is influential in kind of steering us towards that for that patient population and seeing the kind of additive effect of age over 80 with, you know, females with the posterior tilt too is impressive. Um, if you were to redo the study or the analysis today, is there anything that you think that you would do differently? Um, 
in doing the study, um, we were limited in the number of um, confounders that we could include. Um, even though it was a very large study, large randomized trial, um, you know, and we ended up having um, over 500 patients uh, in the non-displaced portion, um, you are restricted by the number of events um, so that your model isn't overfitted. So uh, if we were able to do the study over again with more patients, I would have tried to include more um, comorbidities as potential confounders as well as potential predictors. But I think really the, the next study that needs to be done in this field is basically asking the question of, um, should we be replacing all non-displaced um, femoral neck fractures? Or is there some sort of algorithm um, fix those that don't have posterior tilt, you know, aren't over 80, you know, perhaps aren't female, um, and, and replace all the others? Um, is there some sort of algorithm whereby we can get our reoperation down, rate down to the level that we've come to expect for hemiarthroplasty? Um, like I said, all garden ones and twos taken together, reoperation rate may be 15%, hemis maybe a couple percent, two, three, four percent. Right. So if by eliminating those kind of high risk um, fractures, um, can we can we predict who they are and can we get our reoperation rate down um, into that two, three, four percent range? Or can we not predict all the people who are doomed to fail and even um, in taking the, the high-risk patients off the table for fixation, we still have a, a higher um, reoperation rate. Should we not even be trying to figure it out anymore and just, just replace all of these? Yeah, I think that'll be very interesting. And is that that is the next step, hopefully, you know, to try and create that algorithm from the data set? Yeah, that's my hope. Um, you know, there are randomized trials uh, that have come out since comparing um, fixation to arthroplasty in, in the garden ones and twos, um, and they do find um, a lower uh, rate of reoperation uh, in the hemiarthroplasty group. But I think the, the question remains, um, if we can separate out those high-risk fractures, um, maybe there isn't a difference. So, you know, obviously doing randomized trials is difficult in orthopedics, but um, that would that's definitely my pipe dream. Yeah, of course. Well, again, congratulations. This is a, an excellent paper and, you know, very influential for our practice, and we really appreciate that. Um, thank you for your time tonight, and, you know, we're looking forward to the, the live event and some great discussion here in a couple of weeks. Sounds good. Thank you. All right, Dr. Emil Shamich, thanks for joining me uh, from University of Western Ontario. Today, we're going to be uh, talking about your study um, with the health investigators. Thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So the background for the study is that um, arthroplasty is a pretty conventional treatment for displaced femoral neck fractures in geriatric individuals. And the question is whether to perform a total hip replacement or a hemiarthroplasty. And the idea is that uh, total hip arthroplasty may give better functional outcomes in the long term and have lower rates of secondary procedures. 
presumably hemiarthroplasties in the wrong patient would require conversion to a total hip arthroplasty in the future. The downside is that hemis are, is that total hip replacements are thought to have slightly higher risk of postoperative instability. And so against that backdrop with no high level evidence one way or the other, uh, your team uh, designed this international multicenter randomized controlled trial to compare hemiarthroplasty to total hip arthroplasty in geriatric individuals. So this is this uh, study of 1,495 individuals from uh, 2009 to 2017. The patients were greater than 50 years of age. They had to have a displaced femoral neck fracture, be an independent community ambulator, um, and this would be an isolated low energy able to be treated within three days by an expert surgeon um, who do, does greater than 50 procedures um, or has done greater than 50 uh, of either of these procedures in the past. Primary outcomes were, um, the primary endpoint was unplanned reoperation within 24 months. The secondary outcomes were death, hip-related uh, complications, and, and functional outcomes. And just to highlight the main findings, the main findings were that there was no difference in the primary outcome of uh, unplanned reoperation within the first 24 months. So 7.9 or 8% of patients that got a total hip um, went on to have an unplanned reoperation, and 8.3% of hemiarthroplasties had a secondary procedure. So no significant difference. In terms of sub-analysis, there was a higher rate of instability in the total hip uh, crowd, with 4.7% uh, of them undergoing experiencing dislocation, uh, which was double the 2% of the hemiarthroplasty group. And then the functional outcome scores that you used were the uh, WOMAC functional scores, which were slightly improved in the total hip arthroplasty group, but underneath the minimally clinically important difference. So statistically significant, but not uh, clinically significant. And so Dr. Shemich just wanted to know what, what was the driving force, the motivation for the study for, for you and your team? Well, I think the, the key here is, is that it's a really um, common problem. There's a real um, significant burden of disease with hip fractures. And um, back then, the best surgical treatment uh, really was uncertain. And what we had wanted to do was um, uh, look at um, the best method of internal fixation, actually, against the best method of arthroplasty. And that led to the development of both the FAITH and HEALTH trials. So the FAITH trial being an internal fixation trial and the um, health trial being the um, arthroplasty trial. So we wanted to determine what was the best method of um, arthroplasty in the health trial. So either a hemiarthroplasty or a um, total hip replacement. Great. Um, so one of the chief limitations that's been cited in this study has been the relatively, um, relatively scant follow-up. So two-year follow-up in this study showing no difference in functional outcomes but I think the advocates of total hip replacement would say that if you followed the hemiarthroplasties further out, you would see some, you would certainly see an increase in chondrolysis and conversion to a total hip in the future. Now, without further follow from this study, we do have a recent study from JBJS in 2020, uh, which looked out at five years in terms of reoperation rate and functional outcome. Um, total hip versus hemiarthroplasty, and again showed no difference. So no difference at two years and five years. 
And so my question, my next question, I think for you is, at what point, if any, at what time point, if any, do you think we'll finally start to see a functional uh, outcome difference in this group and a difference in reoperation rate? Well, I think, again, um, it's probably going to come down to longer term follow up. So I, I think the data is pretty um, conclusive that up to about um, five years, there's not a meaningful um, improvement um, in the total hip arthroplasty group, but the follow up is only to um, five years and potentially out you know, to 10 and 15 years, um, we may see um, a difference. I think the other thing too is, um, you know, how it is that we actually categorize the, um, you know, the patients. You know, we did a, an exploratory um, um, sub-study um, looking at functional outcomes um, at two years um, uh, between a HEMI and the total, uh, where we looked at the fittest patients in the health trial, but fitness was um, defined as young patients, ASA one or two, um, independent walkers are at home, and those um, patients we didn't find um, an advantage. But it may be that in patients that are higher functioning, um, so that you know are participating in sports and recreational activities, those patients may actually notice a more meaningful um, difference. So I think it's about longer-term follow-up, and then looking at higher functioning patients who are expected to lead an active life beyond five years. To determine whether, the, in fact, those patients are the ones that are going to benefit from a total hip replacement. Great, thanks. I think we'll we'll uh, expound on that uh, a little bit further in one of my final questions for you. I think this is such an interesting data set that you you and your team have had a couple of studies be offshoots of this. And at one of our, the recent uh, OTA annual meetings, you uh, presented a sub-analysis of the hemiarthroplasty, um, the patient that that were treated with hemiarthroplasty. And uh, specifically, I think you found that a decent number of patients were getting bipolar hemiarthroplasty and a decent page, number of patients were getting unipolar arthroplasty. And uh, some patients, some surgeons that advocate for uh, bipolar hemiarthroplasty cite less of a risk of acetabular erosion, maybe greater uh, hip range of motion. Um, your sub-analysis was elegant. It was a propensity-matched sub-analysis and showed um, no benefit in terms of functional outcome, no benefit in terms of decreased reoperation rate for the bipolar hemiarthroplasty. Do you have any um, advice you can give us in terms of indication for bipolar hemi for a femoral neck fracture? Um, again, I think, you know, one of the big limitations of this sub-study was the, you know, short-term follow-up. So at um, two years, there was absolutely no um, advantage. But one real significant uncertainty is, you know, what happens to high-functioning patients that are expected to live an active life beyond five years post-fracture, similar to the total lip arthroplasty patient population. And, you know, the question is, is that more active, high-functioning patient that's going to live longer going to benefit from a bipolar in either um, function or um, reduced um, revision rate. And certainly if you look at um, some of the registry um, data, particularly in young patients under the age of 70, you see um, improved survival of a bipolar at more than five years compared to a unipolar arthroplasty. Okay, so potentially in the, in the longer, the, those expected to have some longer survivorship. Great. That's it. One other uh, sub-analysis that you pre uh, performed was um, was a cost-effectiveness study recently published. 
can you tell us the conclusion of, of that study comparing the cost effectiveness cost effectiveness of uh, total hip replacement versus hemiarthroplasty? Yeah, I think again, um, it um, comes down to that younger um, patient cohort. So uh, we found that um, total hip arthroplasty may indeed be cost effective um, in younger patients. We uh, broke the um, um, cohort down into uh, four quartiles, and we found that the youngest quartile, um, those who were younger than the age of um, 73, um, that total hip arthroplasty uh, may indeed be cost effective. And um, if you look at that patient population, um, they experience more meaningful improvements in quality of life and they recover quicker. So there's less um, associated costs because of um, shorter hospital stay and there are um, fewer post-operative complications. So when you put that together, it looks like um, in that younger patient population that a total hip actually may be cost-effective. Okay, very interesting. So I think we're arriving at a kind of a take-home message from this study, as well as this subsequent um, analyses that you and your, your team have performed. But who, if anyone, uh, do you think may benefit from a total hip uh, compared to a hemiarthroplasty after a, a displaced femoral neck fracture, given, given everything we've seen so far? I think in a nutshell, it's a very um, specific uh, patient population. So I think it's really um, a high-functioning, high-performing, active um, individual that's under the age of 70 that has a life expectancy beyond about five years. And I think, you know, if you look at the data um, and where we're at in 2023, I think that's the patient population that I would be focused on. Okay. Well, Dr. Shemich, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, visit with us and go through uh, all of your work, and I'm looking forward to uh, participating in the um, in the panel next week with you. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. Welcome, and thank you for joining us, Mike. Here, how are you today? Good. Thanks for having me, Johan. All right. Well, um, we uh, before we go on in detail to discuss about your uh, discussion of your paper, where did you guys get the idea of this study? Yeah, it's a, a great question. So um, I was actually inspired to start the study during residency uh, when I saw a patient who had a femoral neck fracture get treated with a press fit total hip, um, and then they had a post-operative femur fracture about a week or so later. Um, and as, as both of us know, the, the Academy guidelines you know, recommend cemented femoral stems um, in arthroplasty based off of the hemiarthroplasty literature. And some of those guidelines also support total hips um, over hemis in, uh, in select patients. So what I really wanted to do with this study was to investigate whether femoral fixation and the femoral bone stock, um, which we classified uh, by door type, affected the fracture rate for these patients undergoing total hip arthroplasty. Um, and you know, part of the impetus for that too is there's also been some uh, recent registry findings in favor of cemented stems um, in total hips, um, in particular in femoral neck fractures. Um, but our study was really the first non-registry study um, comparing outcomes of cemented versus cementless total hips uh, for these um, low-energy femoral neck fractures. And we tried to hone in on, on some of the granular detail um, in that study. And what did you guys actually find? Yeah, so we found that 
cementless stems had a higher all-cause um, aseptic femoral revision rate. And this is specifically for periprosthetic fractures, uh, whereas cemented stems actually had zero fractures in our cohort. Um, you know, most of these fractures occurred within the first three months after surgery. Uh, about 20% of them, or one in five, occurred intraoperatively. Um, when we did the, the log regression and we, you know, took into account all these confounders like patients and surgical factors, uh, we still found that cementless stems and door C bone were uh, big risk factors uh, for fracturing. We really didn't find any other differences in terms of, you know, dislocation rates, deep infections, or even mortality. Um, and, you know, we, we also looked at temporal trends, which is kind of uh, interesting, you know, across these three institutions that were involved. And we found a decreasing trend in cemented stem utilization. And that's despite a pretty stable proportion of door C patients over time. Um, so it's pretty interesting what we were able to do with, with this multi-center study um, and really look, hone in on the details in this. What do you think that the most important thing to uh, take away from this uh, your study? I think the most relevant finding um, for surgeons is that you know the cemented stems had zero fractures compared to Prestfit stems. Um, personally, what was most interesting to me was that each successive door type had a higher fracture rate with cementless implants, um, and that even door A had. Uh, a decent number of fractures. And so um, it was 2.3% in door A, 3.7% uh, in door B, and it was a very high and alarming rate of 16% in door C. Um, to me, that's a high rate in all groups, even in the door A. I mean, in door A, that's about one in 40 patients um, that gets a fracture. And in door B, that's about one in 25. And in door C, that's about one in six patients fractured, uh, which obviously is very alarming um, for most of us to think about. What were some challenges for uh, for this study that you had? I think the um, the biggest challenge was, you know, we, we tried doing the study as a single institution initially. We just didn't have the numbers. And so, um, you know, the challenge was getting enough patients to be adequately powered to detect differences. And so we ended up doing this by engaging um, uh, collaborating institutions and, and doing a multi-center study um, across three large trauma and arthroplasty centers. And you know, we, we had about 96% power for determining differences in fracture rate. Um, you know, some of the challenges were we, we weren't powered to detect other differences like implant characteristics, even though we looked at that as well. Um, but I would say that was probably the biggest challenge was uh, trying to do this as an uh, without using a registry uh, to really get this granular detail. You just need you need a lot of centers to be involved. Would you do anything different? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that goes back to kind of this last last thing you asked me is, you know, if it was possible, I would have liked to have more centers involved over a shorter time period. Um, I think our time period was pretty broad, and you know that was to just encompass all of those patients. 
And really cementless stems have evolved in terms of their design and geometry in recent years, um, particularly collared stems, which uh, a lot of surgeons have been using instead of cemented stems for patients at risk. Um, I think the jury's still out whether these collared stems are protective in Dorsey bone, but that's that's something that I think, you know, with more uh, centers involved um, that we can pr uh, probably study in the future, especially as these, these stems are relatively new. Um, so they haven't been on the market too long. Um, but I think as we get more long-term data, that's kind of the next step. I think there is a difference for this total hip arthroplasties done for the femoral neck fracture compared to hemi? That's a fantastic question. Um, there really is no real difference technically for the femoral side when you're doing this, obviously. Um, the literature is focused on hemiarthroplasty, and those patients, as we know, tend to be sicker. Um, we often think of you know, the ideal hemicandidus, somebody, you know, the demented patient with multiple comorbidities who falls and uh, has a low energy fracture and requires a hemi. Um, I think the difference lies in the thinking that, and, you know, this is kind of the current dogma that patients who get total hips tend to be healthier candidates and may do better with cementless stems. Um, however, I think we're trying to challenge that. So hopefully this study demonstrates that regardless of whether a patient is a candidate for a total or a hemi, that femoral neck fractures may do better uh, with a cemented stem um, in terms of reducing the fracture risk. Um, in your opinion, your patient um, on the uh, this study for cemented group for total hip arthroplasty for femoral neck fracture, were they sicker? Yeah, you're right. Um, the uh, The cemented patients in our study were generally just slightly poorer health, I would say, but they were not incredibly sick patients. Um, you know, like you said, the ASA wasn't different between the cohorts. Um, compared to Presfit or cementless patients, they were about seven years older, slightly lower BMI, um, et cetera. But really, they were not incredibly sick. And you know that's kind of hence why they were candidates for a total hip replacement. Um, their, their general health was not poor to the point where they were hemi candidates, um, you know, decent ambulatory status beforehand, uh, good mental status, things like that. Um, so I think it's a, it was a fair comparison of, of patients who were deemed healthy enough to get a total hip, um, but we still found that cemented stems were protective in that group. And I think, you know, I think part of that too is yeah, they had a slightly higher rate of being diagnosed with osteoporosis um, prior to their admission. But I think the fact that they had a femoral neck fracture also kind of self-declares that diagnosis as well in all of those patients. Why, why do you think that door type did not show any association um, with a fracture in the elective total hip? Uh, but in, it shows uh, association in a femoral neck fracture. Yeah, that's a great question. There's a couple studies that looked at elective total hips, um, and they didn't find that door type was associated with femoral neck fractures. And we likely, uh, sorry, they didn't see it associated with periprosthetic fractures. And 
you know, we likely saw the effect here because all of our patients had a femoral neck fracture. Um, again, in my eyes, they self-declared that they have a poor state of bone health. Um, and so we were more likely to see that effect here. And, you know, in my eyes, again, all of these patients should have a diagnosis of osteopenia or osteoporosis, whether it was formally diagnosed or not. Um, you know, the other thing is, you know, these are all trauma patients that come in. So unlike the elective total hip, they're not optimized. You know, they're not, you know, two months beforehand where, you know, our elective hips undergo quite a bit of optimization to get surgery, you know, including quitting smoking, alcohol use, optimizing their nutritional status and their labs. Um, you know, these are trauma patients and, and really you, you can't do any of that beforehand with these patients. And so I think I think that lends to a few differences between looking at an elective total hip versus a patient that comes in with a femoral neck fracture. Thank you. Based on um, the AJRR, the significant number of the femoral neck fracture cases are still going non-cemented. Why do you think that some choose to uh, or prefer to do non-cemented hip arthroplasty for femoral neck fractures? Yeah, again, I, I think this lies in the traditional thinking that these patients have less comorbidities and they should have healthier bone. And we're really trying to challenge that dogma in this paper. Um, and I think, you know, part of the other thing is there's recent modern cementless stems with collars that may be protective of fractures. And there's, there's some studies out there that has shown that, um, but the literature is very scarce on this topic. And I'm guessing that's why some people are still using cementless stems. Um, for both of those reasons, and uh, colleagues that I know that choose to use a cementless stem over a cemented stem um, tend to choose a collared stem, um, or they tend to choose a design that they think would be preventative uh, these days. Um, and, you know, our study obviously encompassed a huge time period, so some of those stems were not existent 10, 15 years ago, um, but those do exist now, and and I think we need to study that um, some more. But I, I, I do think that we should not lose the art of cementing because, um, you know, because of this study and several other studies that show it's, it is truly protective of fractures. Um, you know, and maybe we'll get more data on collared stems. But until then, I think, um, you know, we should not lose that art of, of cementing, that cementing technique and teaching residents and, um, and trainees how to do that. There's a tenfold increase in pulmonary complication in your paper. Do you think that this can be a deal breaker for some? Yeah, that's another great question. Um, so we found five total occurrences of a perioperative PE. And, you know, four of them occurred in the cemented stems. One occurred in a cementless case. So it's tenfold, but that's 2% versus 0.2%. And it's, it's also unclear whether these were fat emboli or whether they were thrombolic emboli. And, um, you know, this being a retrospective study, you really couldn't parse that out. Um, you know, the good thing is that it wasn't a cause of mortality for any patient. Um, but that's, you know, one of the weaknesses of our study was this broad time period. And, and so I think we're better at preventing and catching PE today than we did 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but back to your question, I, 
I don't think it's a deal breaker per se, but it's something that definitely needs to be communicated to our anesthesia colleagues, intra-op and pre-op um, to prevent PE in the first place and to just have a low threshold post-operatively to rule that out as well. And I just have a one last question. What next after you're this study? Yeah, I think the big response I got from some of my colleagues um, about this study is, you know, they've been challenged to uh, consider using more cemented stems in their practice. One of the things that's preventing them from using cemented stems is, um, you know, they, they've been comfortable using these modern collared cementless stems for these patients, and they believe that the rates are similar anecdotally in terms of fracture rate. So I think really the next step is to study the use of these modern cementless collared stems in these patients and compare that to cemented stems and see if that really does reduce the fracture rate and possibly prevent the PE rate as well. Um, so that's what I think we can go from here. Awesome. Well, Dr. Kira, I appreciate your time. I always pleasure talking to you and uh, picking your brain about this complex issues. I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. I'm going to load back up the slide deck for a second, potentially. There we go. So first of all, thank you to the uh, moderators and to our faculty. I think those videos um, of the interviews were excellent, very informative, getting at the heart of a lot of the questions that uh, we ask and face when it comes to dealing with uh, elderly femoral neck fractures. Now, one of the, the studies that we did not do a formal interview about, uh, but came up multiple times is what's called the FAITH trial. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that that was at least acknowledged and, and we can talk about it a little bit if we want to, uh, but that was for fracture fixation and the operative management of elderly femoral neck fractures, international multi-center randomized again. Uh, these were patients age 50 years or older with a low energy hip fracture. Uh, primary outcome was hip reoperation within 24 months uh, after the initial surgery for any of these reasons. Um, and there were 557 sliding hip screws and 551 cancella screw constructs. Um, and straight from the abstract, but if you dig into it, I think you know it really the data really supports what this conclusion is. In terms of reoperation rates, the sliding hip screws showed no advantage, uh, but some groups uh, in the, uh, the cohort analysis, um, not cohort, subset analyses uh, showed that smokers and those with displaced base of femoral neck fractures might do better with a sliding hip screw than with cancella screws. Uh, the other slide that I would, you know, I wanted to go over, but also was brought up several times, uh, was the uh, American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeon guidelines regarding cementing and elderly femoral neck fractures. Uh, it's a strong recommendation with a strong level of evidence, um, you know, two or more high quality studies. And I think we heard, you know, another decent uh, quality study tonight. Uh, that patients undergoing arthroplasty for femoral neck fractures, the use of cemented femoral stems is recommended. Um, and yet, I think all of us probably know uh, colleagues and or patients, and maybe we've even done it ourselves where we've chosen not to do that, even uh, despite some pretty overwhelming evidence uh, to the contrary. Uh, so to review the, the things we were supposed to learn, and then we're going to have the discussion, um, should hopefully be able to state the main finding of the FAITH trial. 
Dr. Okike went over some salient risk factors uh, for failure of elderly femoral neck fracture fixation. Um, based on the health trial, there appears to be uh, a very similar risk benefit profile uh, for hemiarthroplasty versus total hip arthroplasty, ultimately with no difference between the two groups, especially uh, functional outcomes. Um, and then uh, the role of cementing femoral component in elderly femoral neck fractures, I mean, I do have a bias here, I cement them. So, I mean, I think that the role is uh, pretty clear, you know, for both hemis and totals that it should be cemented. Um, and so hopefully this helps answer some of the surgical dilemmas. Uh, the first question that, that I want to ask, and it's actually the first question that came up in the question and answer from our participants um, was, and I want to read it directly, is, is there a role for CT scan? Um, and this was uh, when the first video was going on. So uh, Dr. Okike, is there a concern for obtaining multiple lateral x-rays and a potential risk for displacing the fracture? Um, are you doing a cross table lateral or a frog leg lateral? Um, and then after you start discussing that, the other thing that comes to mind for me for CT scans is, you know, every once in a while, you, know, you can't really tell if it's displaced or when you're trying to measure 20 degrees on x-ray, is it better to measure 20 degrees on a CT scan, et cetera? So basically what, what's your thoughts on CT scans for femoral neck fractures and ones that you may or may not be able to tell if they're displaced? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, I do cross table or shoot through laterals. Um, I, there are some who argue that, you know, having a hip fracture patient do frog leg laterals is mean. Um, I tend not to do CTs, um, but, you know, this study was looking at 20 degrees of posterior tilt. And I think since we did this study, I've gotten even more kind of conservative, um, in that really, if there is any, um, degree of posterior tilt that I can see, um, on x-ray, I will start tending towards hemiarthroplasty these days. Um, I just... I just think hemiarthroplasty is such a good operation, works well. Um, you know, if you're choosing to fix a non-displaced femoral neck fracture, you got to be pretty certain um, that that patient's not, not going to fail. Um, and I, I just think the onus is on us to, um, to not have these patients uh, reoperated because they just do so poorly. Uh, other faculty members, Dr. Kerr, Dr. Shemich, um, your thoughts on the role of a CT scan? Um, I, I personally um, don't typically get a CT scan. I, I might get a CT scan if I'm unsure of the diagnosis, but um, once I have the diagnosis, then I, I pretty much um, leave it at the plain films, um, and I typically tend to get a shoot-through um, lateral and again, just in terms of decision-making, I've got a pretty low threshold for um, going to um, an arthroplasty. So internal fixation is gonna be done in a younger um, patient um, with pretty much no angulation. Um, and um, it, it's pretty uncommon these days for me to be doing um, internal fixation in a fragility fracture. It's more and more arthroplasty. Yeah, similar. Um, yeah, no CT usually. Uh, being at a large academic university, those a lot of our patients that come to the ED happen to get a CT, um, but I wouldn't necessarily need one. Uh, 
Yeah, I agree. A lot of the patients we see also have CT scans for whatever reason, um, not ordered by orthopedics. Uh, I think it's interesting because yeah, I hadn't really thought about this a lot before your paper, Dr. Okike, but when you start to look at the CT scans or even the, the cross, you know, laterals, it's amazing that we thought that the screws that, you know, that if you're using three screws, we're ever really getting into the head because once you start to get, you know, quite a bit of angulation, there's not a path that's really good for those screws to get from the lateral cortex of the femur, you know, up into the femoral head. So, if, you, if, if someone's on the line and they haven't actually looked at that before, it's, you know, pretty eye-opening the first time I started to think about it, like, what the heck was I doing? Um, all right, this question, let's ask Dr. Kerr first. So if, if you don't know, Dr. Kerr is not uh, a trauma-trained surgeon, though he does uh, trauma operations. He's an arthroplasty-trained surgeon. Um, what approach should we be using for arthroplasty? We didn't really talk about all of that in all the discussion of arthroplasty. So, you know, or should we do direct anterior, anterior lateral, posterior? I'm interested in the, the faculty's thoughts on the approach. Yeah, um, it's a great question. I don't think there's great studies that have looked at approach and outcomes for femoral neck fractures. Certainly there's a, quite a bit of studies that look at direct anterior versus posterior approach in elective total hips. And I will say that largely there is no difference between them in terms of um, outcomes, um, in terms of recovery, in terms of dislocation rates. Um, there are some recent studies and large registry studies that have shown maybe a slightly lower dislocation rate with direct anterior approach, but it's, it's not impressive and it's not consistent again, uh, across studies. Um, in terms of recovery, there's a lot of marketing out there that, show, that you know, discuss direct anterior patients recovering sooner. The best studies out there show that they recover maybe two weeks sooner, um, and then there's no difference at three months, six months, one year. Um, so I, I don't know the answer to that for, for femoral neck fractures. I do both direct anterior or posterior approach for those. Um, kind of depends, I think, on their BMI. So if they have a high BMI, I likely will go posterior. It's easier and they have a lower risk of a surgical site infection. And if they're skinnier, I'll tend to do it anterior. I think um, if you look at the evidence, um, I, I think um, what the literature would say potentially is that um, the patient who has the direct, um, like a Harding approach, uh, doesn't do as well um, with an arthroplasty. And you might say, well, that's the traditional approach um, to avoid instability. But in actual fact, these patients um, who are sort of teetering on the edge in terms of function, I think when their um, um, abductors are disrupted to do the approach, um, they actually don't do as well functionally. And there's actually registry data um, that says that. So um, <clears throat> I think if you're going to fix one of these, um, ideally in terms of functional outcome, you're probably better off either doing a direct anterior um, or posterior. I think the posterior approach um, classically has been associated with more um, hip instability. But I think, um, you know, if you're using a larger femoral head, you're doing a careful capsular reconstruction, make sure you put the components in really good um, position and consider the use of dual mobility. I think that instability difference uh, disappears. And I find that um, uh, 
for me, it's the sort of workhorse um, approach. So I pretty much will do the posterior approach routinely in this patient population. Kanu, are you also a posterior approach or something else? I, I think that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think uh, some of the things that Dr. Shemich mentioned are kind of more recent things, you know, uh, dual mobility, for example. Certainly the historical data shows that there is a higher rate of reoperation with hemis that are done via posterior approach. Um, I think many of us rarely see a dislocation um, from a hemi, but but in the literature, it does happen and it's a higher rate with posterior approach. So me personally, for patients where I am kind of concerned about their kind of function, I'm typically doing a, a total hip and I do that through a direct anterior approach. But for the old kind of low function, uh, demented patients where I'm doing a hemi, I'll typically do an anterolateral approach um, because dislocation is what I'm concerned about as opposed to their uh, being able to hike four miles. So we, we've um, talked about the role of cementing for elderly femoral neck fractures. I guess the, one of the questions I was thinking of as this was going along, is there any patient who should not be cemented for an elderly femoral neck fracture? Um, classic arguments, uh, the quote, pulmonary cripple. Um, I don't know. So just throwing that out there, is there somebody that you, you know, that we think with kind of overwhelming evidence for cement that should actually not be cemented and you should do a press fit for whatever your choice is, hemi or total arthroplasty? I'll jump in first on that one. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Dr. Shemich. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I think in general, um, these patients should be treated with a cemented implant. And it may be in that sort of gray area of the patient who's 50 to 60, maybe has a higher energy mechanism, you know, has a door type A femur, good quality bone. Um, in that patient population, um, I would potentially consider using um, an uncemented implant, um, but um, it's almost universal that I'm potentially, like I'm gonna use uh, cement in a patient that's got a fragility fracture, um, femoral neck fracture. Like there's almost no indication otherwise for me to use an uncemented implant. Yeah, I'm a pretty strong proponent of cement. Um, I think the concerns that many surgeons have about cement implantation syndrome, um, which occasionally is seen in um, higher rates in certain studies, that's primarily due to confounding by indication. The patients getting cement are a little bit older are a little bit sicker and more prone to these things. Um, the studies that have been done that are actually randomized, or we did one with uh, propensity scores, you tend to see that go away. Um, uh, I do think you can get your risk of cement implantation syndrome very, very low. Um, but that being said, there are a small number of patients where I won't do cement. And yeah, these are patients where, you know, their EF is 10%, they're on HOMO2, you know, they're on high dose pressors throughout the case, you know, patients like that, I will forego cement, um, but it's a pretty uh, rare occasion. Yeah, I agree. And not to beat a 
beat a dead horse but yeah high energy mechanisms i agree are um a different beast like what dr shemich was saying um i think you know all the patients in in our study were all acute low energy fractures and so they were likely osteoporotic but these these high energy femoral neck fractures are a completely different beast and and um you know if they're healthy enough and high functioning i would consider cementless stems for them uh in terms of possible higher longevity um, but i think you should still have a very low threshold to cement regardless uh, especially if they're older and you should always look at their bone quality and and do things case by case dr shemich there was a specific question for you about whether you're using dual mobility on all your femoral neck fractures that are undergoing a total hip um in general um i would now um because I, I think that um the patient population that is best served um by a total hip is a young um, uh, high performance, um, well-functioning patient population. So it's typically, um, you know, someone under the age of 70, um, you know, who's very active, you know, maybe plays tennis, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and that patient population, you know, being that active, I think is at increased risk of, um, instability. Um, you know, they're a patient population that, does not have arthritis, so they don't have the, um, you know, the contractures um, that you would normally see in an OA patient population. So they tend to be um, at fairly high risk of uh, instability. Um, and, you know, we saw that um, in the health trial where the instability rate was twice um, in the total hip um, population. Um, so I feel that, um, you know, dual mobility is a good option. It's easy to do. And, um, you know, I think really helps um, with that um, issue of instability. So I, I routinely would use it in the patient getting a total hip. Anyone else um, using dual mobility, not just uh, for, the, for the faculty, but uh, Dr. Harkin, Dr. Jang, Dr. Goodman? Yeah, I do use your dual mobility on all femoral neck fracture um, patients that are treat total hip. Um, I think the hip stability is a, a one of the thing, and I do use an anterolateral approach. So um, I do rely on dual mobility at some point, but um, I think that the literature evidence is not there to support the dual mobility I actually do support a lower uh, rate of complications or dislocation rates or anything like that. I mean, I think one of the things that um, requires study in this area is the whole issue of the surgical approach. And I think in the past, we've been, you know, very, very focused on, um, you know, hip instability, trying to avoid posterior approaches. And, you know, the historical um, approach has been to use the, um, you know, anterolateral approach um, or Harding approach. Um, and, um, you know, it's been solely focused on uh, reducing um, challenges with um, uh, hip instability. And as I said earlier, I mean, one of the challenges is that um, there's more to um, the patient's uh, recovery than just avoiding a dislocation. It's also about um, function. And I think sometimes in this patient population where um, function can sometimes be a challenge, um, um, doing something iatrogenic to the hip abductor mechanism, I think, uh, does um, lead to challenges in terms of um, functional outcome. So that is my perception, but I don't have any sort of proof to back it up. And I think this whole notion of um, approach is something I think that um, 
uh, requires study and I think would be something that would be an excellent topic for a randomized control trial. Is there something you're not telling us, Dr. Shemich? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I'd love to pull the panel, um, you know, kind of activity level and dementia and comorbidities aside. What is the age um, above which you're pretty much almost always doing hemi and the age below which you're um, usually doing total? Dr. Shemich mentioned 70. I think for me, it's probably closer to 80, but I'd be curious to see what others think. Again, comorbidities and um, other things being more important. Yeah, I'll start with that one. And it might not help very much because um, I really go by the the functional status. Um, and so I've done total hips on a few patients that are, you know, high 70s, low 80s. I've never found somebody like high 80s to low 90s that fits the real functional definition of, I think the classic randomized trials from, and don't quote me on what country in Europe, but it was like, you had to be mentally sound, live alone, um, be independent of your ADLs and like get outside and walk a block a day or something, right? And so um, if they're doing those, I've done totals on people who are pretty old. Um, and so I, I haven't used age as much as a cutoff. Um, but you bring up an interesting point because usually you're sitting there in morning rounds or something and, um, at, you know, especially those at academic institution, the first thing that somebody says is like, this patient is too sick for X, right? In this case, X being a total hip. Um, and I think that the thing that weighs on me is like, we've done such a good job, our colleagues medically of taking these sick patients who are, you know, really sick, but happen to be pretty darn functional too. Their list of comorbidities is very long, but they're living alone, taking care of themselves, going outside and shopping, et cetera. Um, so that's why the health trial in particular has really challenged me, like what to do with that now, because at two and five years, it looks like maybe there isn't a difference for hemis and totals. So I'll stop, I'll stop rambling, but that's kind of my long answer to your very simple question. I, um, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I, I, I go with Dr. Natoli. I mean, I do um, ask patients what their functional status is. Another thing that I do ask is I look at cardiology or their internal medicine notes. Do they have medical clearance uh, with METs greater than four? Because um, we do know that met, uh, any reason that patient inability to perform METs greater than four have about 20 to 30% of complication rate postoperatively for non-cardiac surgeries. So these patients, despite of their functional, if they, if their body there, especially their heart is not um, uh, backing their activity level, chances of them getting benefit from total is lower and it tends to do a hemi. Uh, but I do uh, heavily look at their functional status. Do they go for grocery shopping by themselves? So do they take care of their house and et cetera? So those are the things that I look at. I mean, I, I think it's absolutely critical to talk to the patient and determine exactly, you know, what their function is and, you know, are they high functioning? Are they high performing? Because um, at the end of the day, like even in the health trial, like we looked at the, um, you know, the fittest patients in the health trial like the patients under the age of 70, ASA one or two, um, and the patients did not use a walking aid and lived independently. And even in that patient population, there was no difference between a total hip and a hemiarthroplasty. So, um, you know, even an independent patient um, not using a walking aid is still not high performing. So, 
So um, I think you've really got to sit down and actually, um, you know, figure out um, like what is high function. And it's only with that determination that I think a total hip is really merited. And it really is in that patient under the age of 70. If you look at registry data out to 15 years and longer, um, there's no difference between a bipolar um, and a total hip. The group that doesn't do well at longer follow-up is unipolar, whether that's modular or non-modular. But a bipolar at you know 15 plus years follow-up does just as well as um, a total hip in a patient um, that is over the age of 70. Speaking of um, you know how we evaluate our patients and their activity level, one question just came up in the chat and how we approach morbid obesity for the panelists, does that impact whether or not it's pushing you towards a hemi or a total in this patient population? Um, again, um, I, I think it has to do with um, activity level and whether or not they're high functioning and high performing. So I guess I'd have to try and figure out if a morbidly obese patient is going to be um, um, very active um, and high functioning. And, um, you know, if they're not, um, then um, I would typically tend to do more of a, a HEMI. Um, I mean, I'd have to sort of sit down and um, figure out how active they actually are if they have morbid obesity. Many of you may be familiar with the obesity paradox, whereby we would assume that the fatter you are, the higher your mortality rate is actually the opposite. Um, so the highest mortality rate is in underweight and then um, a little bit lower, you know, normal weight, a little bit lower, overweight, and then the lowest is in the obese group. Um, surprising, um, but if you look it up, it's true. So these patients, they have higher rates of complications and they're more annoying for us to operate on, but they actually survive. Um, so I don't know how that relates to your question, um, but these folks, <laughs> these folks don't often pass away like you might expect they would. For, for panelists, um, do you see a stress shielding, whether it's cemented or cementless in your practice? So, yeah, this is something I tried to answer in the, the q and I, I think it's really rare these days. Um, like I was saying uh, in the chat, um, I was trying to explain. So proximal stress shielding is, I think, what the, uh, the person's asking that occurs when your fixation on your stem is is more distal and in older stems, cementless stems that were much, much longer, sometimes you would pot distally and you would get more of that distal fixation rather than a proximal metaphyseal fixation. So your compressive stress is going to bypass all that proximal greater troche bone um, and proximal metaphyseal bone and get transmitted distally to the diaphysis. I don't think we see this as much anymore because modern implants are so much shorter um, and they're, the porosity on those stems is focused on the metaphyseal fixation. So we're not seeing as much um, potting distally with those stems and we're just seeing more of that proximal good metaphyseal fixation and no stress shielding. And then for cemented stems, that's a really good question. If you have a good and equal cement mantle around the entire stem, you should have equal distribution throughout the femur from proximal to distal. If you don't have a good cement mantle and it's kind of wonky, then you'll have an unequal distribution of your compressive forces. Um, and that's kind of the best way I could answer that. So you want a good 
cement mantle around your stem that's equal uh, circumferentially um, around that stem from proximal to distal. You don't want the stem in varus or valgus, you want it uh, uh, central down, down the canal. We've answered a bunch of questions about um, orthoplasty. There was a great question from in the Q&A. I wanted to ask Dr. Okike about that Scandinavian randomized control trial uh, for non-displaced femoral neck fractures, HEMI versus FIX. Um, significantly lower reoperation rate in the HEMI crowd and then equal functional outcomes with the ex exception of that timed up and go test, which favored the HEMI group. I think you you alluded to this in your interview with Dr. Harkin, but is that changing the conversation with you and, and patients with non-displaced femoral necks? Yeah, I think certainly all comers, all non-displaced fractures, um, if you compare the outcomes fixation versus replace, replace does better. I think the question is, yeah, as, as I stated, can we identify, can we predict those who are gonna fail? If we can eliminate them, um, can we get down to a rate that's similar to hemiarthroplasty? Um, so me personally, I, I still haven't given up hope. Um, so by weeding out anyone who I think has a chance of failing, um, you know, over 80, um, any sort of um, tilt on the lateral um, female, if I eliminate all that entire group, um, can I get down to a, a group that isn't going to fail? Um, and, and that's what I'm trying now. And Seems to be working, but surgeons always think what they're doing is working. And as a follow-up, are you using uh, in the in the individuals you're fixing? Are you using cantilever screws or a fixed angle device? I personally prefer a fixed angle device. Um, you know, the the two fail differently. Um, the screws they just you know they just collapse into varus. There's nothing that stops that. I think in the fixed angle device, you'll sometimes have the head kind of collapse around um, the, you know, the screw um, and you'll have uh, protrusion into the joint. They fail differently, um, but I, I personally prefer a, a sliding hip screw with an anti-rotational screw. And there was a question in the chat about FNS. Um, I, I am not a fan. I think many who, who started using it have moved away from it. Um, but I'd be interested to hear uh, if there's anyone who's had good experiences with that device. I mean, I, I um, don't use the um, FNS and there was just a paper um, that was presented at the OTA talking about 11% um, incidence of subtrochanteric femur fracture, um, if I remember um, correctly. So I would definitely be worried about that. Um, I must say, I typically tend to use um, a sliding hip screw, um, which I think gives good outcomes. Um, and in, in um, undisplaced um, fractures, um, there's no real um, difference with cannulated screws, but with displaced fractures, um, there does seem to be um, an advantage. So, I mean, I think if you use it um, universally, um, you can't go wrong. Um, so if you've um, misjudged, if there's any displacement, you've got the better implant um, with the um, sliding hip screw. And I think the other thing to bear in mind too with these fractures, just getting back to the conversation around um, internal fixation versus arthroplasty, I mean, talked a lot about, um, you know, failure and reoperation, but um, many of these patients with internal fixation shorten and, you know, you'll see, um, you know, some series where, you know, more than half the patients have significant um, shortening and a patient who's got um, a centimeter and a half of shortening um, after the fracture is finally healed, 
um, is a patient who's not going to do well um, functionally. Um, and that's one thing you can avoid um, when you're using an arthroplasty. I'm going to call it turkey here. Um, this has been a really excellent discussion, but we do have to stop at some point. We could probably go on all night. Um, the one interesting observation I think I was just making is we should all probably become good at cemented hemis, uh, because if we look at one spectrum, it's almost questioned whether for any femoral neck fracture, we should be doing arthroplasty. And if we look at the other spectrum, when we're talking about hemis versus totals, it seems like hemis are, you know, perfectly okay. So, you know, that seems to be what will be the largest um, useful operation for the vast majority of people. All the caveats that we've discussed aside, there might be some outliers where we can drive the rates one way or another, or the super functioning, you know, people who benefit from totals, but doing a good cemented hemi and maybe through a posterior approach might be the best thing for us. Thank you to all my panelists um, and to the, the moderators uh, for doing the videos, for spending the time with us this evening. I really appreciate it. Um, and then, a, you know, of course, a special shout out to all of our participants who um, registered and got on to listen to us tonight. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, everybody. And um, have a great night. Or in Dr. Kike's case, have a great afternoon. Thank you.